How does he offer a free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that. Free beer. Courtesy of our friends at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red and cover just £4.95 for the postage. As an added bonus for Seeing Red listeners, sign up within the next two weeks and get two extra free beers. So that's a total of 10 free beers. Beer 52 traversed the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. Each month they deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have ranged from Germany to Korea, Norway to South Africa and even California to Finland, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the craft beer scene. And the beauty of Beer 52 is they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in and you can leave any time. I've been a customer for 12 months now and let me tell you, there is no better feeling than arriving home from work to a fresh delivery from Beer 52. Your first box will be sent to you next day and will contain beer from all over Europe. You'll also get the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, and if that wasn't good enough, they also throw in a tasty snack. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red to get your first case of eight beers for free. And don't forget, sign up in the next two weeks and get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red. That's the word beer, then the numbers five, two... Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, I'm Mark. Thanks for joining me once again, it's great to be back for another episode. This week's case takes us back to the early 90s and it features a harrowing tale of kidnap and murder. And it's at the hands of a man who I believe would have gone on to become one of this country's most prolific serial killers had he not been caught. But before we get into all of that, I would like to thank our Patreon supporters, especially our newest member, Becky Ivel. There are 41 of you in this exclusive club now, and I can honestly say, without your support, we genuinely wouldn't still be here, banging out episodes for our 5,000 loyal listeners. Thank you so much. If you don't currently support the show in this way but you would like to, then you can head over to our page at patreon.com forward slash seeingredpodcast. You can sign up for as little as $3 a month, which is about £2.50, or the same price as a half-decent cup of coffee. All of our patrons receive some exclusive Seeing Red merchandise, and as if that wasn't good enough, you also get a signed postcard from me and Bethan. And depending on the level you sign up to, there are also a number of bonus episodes available. Okay, that's enough of all that. On Friday the 12th of July in 1991 in Gipton, a suburb east of Leeds in West Yorkshire, a man received a letter from his girlfriend Julie. The letter read, Dominic, help me please. I've been kidnapped and I'm being held as a personal security until next Monday night. Please go and tell my mum straight away. Mum, phone the police straight away and help me. I've not eaten anything but I have been offered food. 
Feeling a bit sick, but I am drinking two cups of tea per day. Mum, Dominic, help me. Love you all, Julie. When Dominic brought the letter round to Julie's mum's house, she couldn't make sense of the situation she now found herself in. Why would anyone want to kidnap her daughter? And why didn't she get a letter? Why only Dominic, Julie's boyfriend? The pair immediately went to the police, who, unbeknown to them, had also received a letter in that morning's mail. It read, A prostitute has been kidnapped from the Chapeltown area, and she will be killed if a ransom of £140,000 isn't paid by Leeds City Police. The author threatened to firebomb a Leeds City Centre store, as well as murder the prostitute. That prostitute was Julie. While she had told those close to her that she'd been working nights in a local hospital, Julie had in fact been working in the Chapeltown area of the city as a prostitute. Both letters had been sent on the same day and from the same location. Officers realised they had to take the letters extremely seriously or face the consequences. The letter addressed to the police went on to say, Next Tuesday, the 16th of July, a WPC will drive to Birmingham New Street Station with the money and a waiter phone call at the phone terminal in the waiting room on Platform 9. She must wear a lightish blue skirt and carry the money in a shoulder bag. She must be there by 6pm and a waiter call at 7. She will then be given the location of the next phone call. Officers decided to comply with the demands and an operation was mounted with a WPC doing as instructed. However, when she answered the public phone at Birmingham New Street Railway Station, there was no one on the other end of the line. She waited and waited but there were no further phone calls and so the operation had to be abandoned. At this point there was nothing the police could do but wait for the blackmailer's next move. A week passed but no contact was forthcoming. Julie remained missing and officers were no closer to finding her. Her boyfriend and mother were understandably frantic with worry and sadly, their worst fears were confirmed when Julie's badly decomposed body was found 90 miles away next to an abandoned railway line. Pathologist Professor Stephen Jones carried out an autopsy but the cause of death could not be established at that time. There were injuries to Julie's scalp, she had a fractured skull and several bruises were evident on her body but these injuries weren't convincing causes of death. Julie's body had been wrapped in a sheet and when the material was forensically analysed at the lab it yielded an important clue. Yellow wool and brown nylon fibres were present indicating that Julie's body had been rolled into the sheet on a mustard coloured carpet. Officers received a further letter shortly after Julie's body had been discovered. It read, Words will never be able to express my regret that Julie Dart had to be killed, but I did warn what would happen if anything went wrong. I still require the same monies as before, and if you want to avoid any further prostitutes' lives, place an ad in the personal column of The Sun to read, Let's Try Again, for Julie's sake. In the letter there were details of how Julie had died. Details that hadn't been released to the media at that time. The author described strangling Julie and when the pathologist took a closer look at the injuries she had sustained, strangulation was confirmed as the cause of death. The author of the letter was undoubtedly Julie's killer. The police complied with Julie's murderer and placed an advert in the personal column of The Sun. Three days after placing the ad, another letter arrived, this time handwritten, the other two had been typed on an old-fashioned typewriter. 
This letter acknowledged the advert in the sun and warned another hostage would be taken at some point in the near future. The letter ended by setting another date for the handover of the money. The murderer gave instructions for the same WPC to head to a public call box at Leicester Forest East Services on the M1 at a pre-arranged time. But, as had been the case previously, things did not go according to plan. When the phone rang and the WPC answered, she couldn't understand what was being said. On the other end of the line was a tape-recorded message, but due to background noise, the recording was heavily distorted. Consequently, the WPC couldn't take any instructions, and officers could do nothing but sit and wait for their tormentor's next move. After a few days, a letter arrived at the police station. It stated that the WPC should have been able to hear the recording, and the murderer expressed his frustration, saying he would take another hostage in the coming days. And so, another call was set up, with the killer saying if it didn't work this time, he would kill another prostitute. Once again, the same WPC took the call. The killer advised he had taken a hostage, a woman named Sarah Davy. He boasted that he had abducted her on the previous night in Ipswich. He advised the WPC to drive to a remote area where she would receive further instructions regarding the handover of the ransom money. However, seemingly cursed at this point, the operation hit another snag. When the WPC arrived at the remote location, another public phone box, she was unable to receive the call. When she lifted the phone from the receiver, the cradle jammed and she couldn't accept the call. She waited in the vain hope he would call back, but he never did. On a more positive note at this point, detectives couldn't find any evidence of a Sarah Davy who had gone missing and police believed that this was just a story that the killer had fabricated in order to put them under more pressure. Another letter arrived from the tormentor, this time advising the police the game was now abandoned. He did hint, however, that he would be back. With his sadistic game now on hold, officers began to review the information they had so far collated. Postmarks on the letters showed they had been posted from Yorkshire and the West Midlands, locations approximately 100 miles apart. Detectives concluded the author obviously had time to travel. In addition to this, several words, 14 in fact, had been consistently misspelt. Also, in the first two letters, it was clear there was considerable damage to the typeface. The capital letter P had its top left serif missing. The third and fourth letters were handwritten and they were sent off to a handwriting expert for further analysis. Several months passed with no contact between the police and the killer, but they knew he would be back. It was just a matter of when. On Wednesday the 22nd of January in 1992, six months after Julie Dart's murder, 25-year-old Stephanie Slater was arriving for work at Shipways Estate Agents in Great Bar in Birmingham. Stephanie had only been working at Shipways for a couple of months, but she'd already become part of the furniture. A homely girl with long brown hair, Stephanie was well-liked by colleagues and customers alike. That morning she had a mountain of correspondence to get through and also a 10.30am appointment to show a Mr Southall around a property at 153 Turnbury Road. Stephanie liked the variety her job afforded her and pulling up outside the house on Turnbury Road in her company car she must have felt that she'd made it. She had a loving family, a boyfriend and a good job. Her whole life was ahead of her. 
When Stephanie arrived at the property, Mr. Southall was already waiting for her. Reflecting years later on the moment she first set eyes on the man that would derail her life, Stephanie recalled, He was just a normal man, a little bit grubby. Stephanie introduced herself and proceeded to show Mr. Southall around the property. He seemed interested at first, asking questions about the location and the current owners. However, just before the pair went upstairs, he went quiet, almost like he was contemplating something. As he entered the bathroom, Stephanie waited on the landing. When he pointed towards the ceiling and asked Stephanie about a mark on the paintwork, she went into the bathroom and he pounced on her. Stephanie would later say, All of a sudden his face contorted and he had these huge weapons in his hands. A knife with a 12-inch blade and a tool with a big metal hook at the end. She went on, As the adrenaline rushed over me, I thought, Get out, get past him, get round him, just get out but he was so big he seemed to fill the whole room. This grubby little man was suddenly this huge monster. Stephanie fought back, but her attacker overpowered her. Pushing her into the bath, he held a knife to her throat, tied her hands with washing line cord, blindfolded her before leading her to his car, which he had hidden in a garage at the back of the house. Strapping her into the reclined passenger seat, he threw a blanket over her and placed a toolbox on her chest to make her lie flat. Stephanie recalled, He had the knife in his hand sticking into my thigh and he said, If you move, scream or try to escape, I will stab you. I was terrified for my life. Stephanie's attacker drove her to his workshop in Nottingham, stopping only to force her to record a ransom demand, which he immediately posted to her boss, Kevin Watts. In the demand which was recorded on a cassette tape, Stephanie said, This is Stephanie Slater. The time is 11.45. I can assure you I am okay and unharmed. Provided these instructions are carried out, I will be released on Friday the 31st of January. On next Wednesday, you will need an ordnance survey map. Number 103, Blackburn and Burnley. Kevin Watts must be the person to act as a courier and use his own car. Next Wednesday, at every point where instructions are given, the boot of the car must be opened for at least 30 seconds. The money must not be marked in any way whatsoever, or contain any device whatsoever. Stephanie's abductor was demanding £175,000 for her safe return. After recording the demand, Stephanie remembered thinking, there was no way her parents would be able to find that amount of money, and even if they could, there was still a chance that she would be murdered. When Stephanie didn't return to work after the 10.30am viewing, her colleagues began to grow concerned. This wasn't like Stephanie. She was conscientious, she wouldn't be late back to the office. Just as they were starting to think something bad must have happened to her, Kevin Watts, Stephanie's boss, took a phone call. The man on the other end of the line said he had kidnapped Stephanie, and he informed Kevin a ransom would be in the post the next day. He ended the call by saying, If you contact anyone about this, she will die. Kevin didn't heed this advice and immediately called the police, which I think was definitely the right thing to do. Kidnappers will always attempt to control the person they are extorting money from. They will use fear and isolation. And that's because it works. It allows them to remain two steps ahead of the game, always in control, the one calling the shots. The best course of action is to always alert the authorities who are trained in this type of situation. Although it has to be said, on this occasion, lessons were learnt. Officers went round to the house on Turnberry Road to look for signs of Stephanie. 
The front door was open and Stephanie's car was parked outside, but there was no sign of her. She had seemingly vanished into thin air. Police set up phone recording equipment at the estate agents where Stephanie worked in the hope her abductor would call the office again. Meanwhile, with the full backing of police, Shipways agreed to put the ransom money up and a press blackout was invoked. It was vital the kidnapper was not alerted to the police's involvement. Knowing the first 24 hours are crucial in any abduction investigation, officers raced to the Royal Mail Sorting Office and intercepted the mail that was due to be delivered to Shipways the following morning. This would buy them precious extra hours in their hunt for Stephanie. They found the ransom demand and set to work, but first they had to inform Stephanie's parents of their daughter's fate. Recalling his shock at being informed of his daughter's abduction, Stephanie's father described feeling a sense of detachment. He said the news would not register and he couldn't help thinking this kind of thing just didn't happen to normal people. He said he classed himself as a working class man, nothing special and he thought this kind of thing only happened to high profile people. Privately officers were gravely concerned for Stephanie's safety from the very outset. They realised very early on that there was a link to the Julie Dark kidnapping, a kidnapping that had ended in murder. Consequently, their first step was to quietly check with dog handlers and plainclothed officers that Stephanie hadn't already been murdered and dumped in the area in which she had been abducted. Officers conducted discreet house-to-house inquiries in Turnbury Road, where Stephanie had shown the fictitious Mr Southall around number 153. One woman had seen a red metro in the area with a sign on the side which read, Blocked and Broken Drains. Another woman remembered seeing a man standing outside number 153 acting suspiciously. She said he was quite sure of himself, and then as soon as he saw her looking at him, he became shifty. It was clear he didn't want her to see his face. She described him as early 50s, 5 foot 2 inches tall, and said he was wearing a coat with a distinctive badge on the front pocket. A few days later, on the 26th of January, Stephanie's dad took a call at the home he shared with Stephanie's mother on the outskirts of Birmingham. In a pre-recorded message, he heard his daughter say, I happened to see West Bromwich Albion lost yesterday to Swansea 3-2. I want you to know I love you and not to worry too much, and whatever the outcome, I'll always love you. Look after the cat for me. Stephanie's dad remembers breathing a huge sigh of relief when he put the receiver down. He knew the message must have been recorded that day. The football result she gave was for a match that had taken place on the previous day, but because Stephanie had referred to it as happening yesterday, her father knew that that message must have been recorded that very day. As the police prepared the ransom money, they faced a difficult decision. Do they concede to the kidnappers' demands and allow Stephanie's boss, Kevin Watts, to act as the courier, or do they use a trained officer? They knew the latter would not be a viable option, however. It was highly likely that Stephanie's abductor had stalked the branch where she worked. He would most likely know what Kevin Watts looked like, and he had probably even met him. Stephanie's colleagues had recalled this Mr Southall coming into the branch approximately two weeks before Stephanie was kidnapped. He had interacted with several of the staff, Kevin too most probably. And this really disturbs me. I can just imagine him going into the branch, looking around all of the females who work there, deciding which one he would later abduct. And I can almost picture Stephanie there, smiling as she speaks to this prospective buyer, 
not knowing that in just two weeks' time her life would be in his hands. Having spent time with Kevin in the days since Stephanie's abduction, the police had watched him develop and grow in confidence. They were certain he would cope and that he would have faith in their ability to safeguard him. When it came to capturing Stephanie's abductor, detectives knew they had two options. They could arrest him as he picked up the money or they could keep him under surveillance so that he took them to Stephanie, thus ensuring her safety. After all, there was no guarantee they would pay the ransom and Stephanie would be released unharmed. As it was, for reasons unknown, they opted for the former. They would take him down when the money was dropped. When that day came, Kevin kissed his wife and family goodbye and left home for a day at work. It was imperative he went about his day as normal before conducting the drop that night. After waving him off, Kevin's wife shut the door behind her and burst into tears, not knowing whether she would see her husband again. This was a huge undertaking for a civilian, and although officers had confidence in Kevin's ability, they can't have been 100% sure he would get through this ordeal unscathed. As day turned to night and his colleagues went home, Kevin took a call at the office as arranged in the kidnapper's ransom demand. He was ordered to go to Glossop Railway Station just outside of Manchester, approximately 70 miles from the branch of Shipways where he worked. Upon arrival at the station, he would need to head to a phone box inside the entrance hall where he would get a further message at 7pm. Officers tracked Kevin's car on the drive up to Glossop, keeping in touch with him via a microphone and an earpiece. Kevin arrived at Glossop Station where undercover officers were already discreetly located outside. As Kevin made for the entrance, a woman approached him out of nowhere, jolting him as she barged into his side, demanding in an aggressive tone to know how she would get home with a broken indicator. Kevin had been told he may be approached and he thought this old woman could even be Stephanie's abductor in the guise of an old lady or perhaps she was delivering some sort of coded message. Kevin said this encounter completely threw him, which I can totally understand. When you're on high alert in a state of paranoia, anything is possible. Kevin did manage to shake the encounter off as he awaited the phone call, which came at 7pm on the dot. The voice on the other end of the line told him to leave the station and head to another phone box where there would be a message hidden under the parcel shelf which would give him further instructions. When Kevin arrived at the next phone box he found the instructions which told him to drive to a remote location in deepest darkest Yorkshire. Kevin found himself at another phone box and later recalled a dense fog setting in the cold dark air as if this couldn't be any more scary. With his heart thumping through his chest Kevin retrieved the other message which had once again been hidden under the parcel shelf. He got back into his car and read the instructions aloud so the police control room would hear. They would then be able to follow him to the drop point, leaving enough distance so as not to draw any attention to their presence. What Kevin didn't realise at this point was his microphone and earpiece were no longer working. Officers could not hear him clearly and they had no idea where he was headed to. Consequently, Kevin was now on his own. He followed the instructions which led him to a bridle path. When he turned down the path, the first thing he saw was a homemade sign with the word Shipways painted on it. Kevin knew instinctively Stephanie's abductor was waiting for him at the end of the track. 
Due to the foggy conditions and the immense stress he was under, Kevin was oblivious to the fact that all communication with the control room had been lost. The final set of instructions directed Kevin to a tray balancing on the top of a wall. He was to place the hold all containing the money in the tray and then drive away. Kevin did as instructed and remembers how dark and foggy it was and how petrified he felt at the thought of the kidnapper jumping out from the dark and the fog and attacking him. To say he was extremely frightened would be an understatement. He was totally alone. He said the feelings he had at that time were indescribable. He wasn't in control of his own mind. Stephanie's abductor was. After dropping the money, Kevin quickly got back into his car and drove off. But, because of the communication breakdown, officers didn't know that he had dropped the money, and frustratingly, their man had gotten away. In a shocking twist, however, Stephanie's kidnapper was true to his word, and he released her that very night. When her father opened the door to the family home, he couldn't believe his eyes. Standing in front of him was his beloved daughter, dazed, confused, distressed, but alive. Stephanie was immediately taken to a private hospital, where she could be cared for and questioned by specially trained officers. Meanwhile, the police managed to locate the exact location where Kevin had dropped the money. Unbeknown to him at the time, he had been standing on the top of a railway bridge. A length of washing line had been used to pull the tray holding the money to the ground below, thus enabling the kidnapper to get away quickly. With the news blackout now having come to an end, detectives decided to release only limited information to the press. They opted to withhold the tape recordings of the kidnapper. Although this was their strongest piece of evidence, they were concerned it would result in thousands of names being put forward, thus hampering the investigation. The police had learnt lessons from the Yorkshire Ripper case, where they were besieged with leads, resulting in the name of the killer being lost into a black hole. Detectives spoke to Stephanie and began to build a picture of what happened to her that fateful morning after she had been driven away from Turnbury Road. Stephanie had been driven some distance before being dragged out of the car. She was blindfolded and disorientated but remembered hearing the sound of keys rattling and a heavy door sliding open. She entered a building and remembered thinking she would die there, that she would never see daylight again. Once inside, her abductor told her to undress and gave her a change of clothes, a cardigan, a pair of jeans and a jumper. He then asked if she would like fish and chips for tea. Stephanie recalled she didn't feel hungry, but thought she should eat something and so, she told the man she liked chips. He went out to collect her dinner from the local fish and chip shop, and when he came back he manoeuvred her to a mattress and fed her the chips. When Stephanie had finished eating, he snarled at her and said, I hope you're not claustrophobic. It's bedtime. He then proceeded to awkwardly shove Stephanie into a wheelie bin. He said there were boulders above her. If she moved around, they would fall on her and crush her to death. After that, he left before telling her he would be back the next morning. Stephanie was terrified. All night she kept seeing things in her mind. Although not remotely religious, she saw the image of Christ in front of her. She thought she was dying. The next morning Stephanie awoke to the sound of a radio. A few minutes later her abductor got her out of her makeshift coffin. She was in so much pain she remembered he was genuinely surprised to find her in such a state. 
She was unable to move one arm for some time. She'd lay in an awkward position for several hours. Her abductor gave her some tea and allowed her to use a toilet, escorting her blindfolded. He then let her stay on a mattress during the day while he appeared to leave, but he told her not to move, saying, if you do, I will know. It was at this point she realised screaming was not going to work. If she was to stand any chance of surviving this horrific ordeal, she would have to make him realise she was a human being. Only then would it make it more difficult for him to kill her. Every morning during her eight days in captivity, Stephanie's captor would arrive at about 8am. He would turn on the radio, which was always tuned to Radio 2. The sound of the familiar radio jingles and the voice of the DJ would haunt Stephanie for the rest of her days. Her abductor would use a microwave to make her porridge. She knew this as she could hear the whirring of the rotating plate and the ping when the food was ready. She could hear banging and hammering throughout the day, and most disturbingly of all, she could hear people coming and going, talking jovially with her abductor. She didn't know it at the time, but Stephanie was being held in the back room of a tall fixer's workshop. Customers would be in and out all day, if only they knew. If only they could hear her cries. Occasionally she would hear an old-fashioned telephone ringing, and in the rare glimpse she had from underneath her blindfold, she could just about make out wooden beams on the ceiling. She also recalled hearing a bell from an old-fashioned cash register. On her last day in captivity, Stephanie's abductor informed her that she would soon be released. He said the drop was going to take place that night and she would soon be free. Disturbingly at this point he took a Polaroid picture of her before putting her back in the wheelie bin. He left and said he would be back at around 9pm. When he didn't return Stephanie began to panic thinking something must have gone wrong. All of a sudden her head was filled with the horrific thought that he wasn't coming back. That nobody knew where she was. That she was going to die in that wheelie bin. She struggled to get free, but couldn't, and in a moment of utter desperation, she decided she would attempt to suffocate herself with a pillow. But before she could execute her plans, her abductor did come back. He told her the drop had been a success, and he put her in his car and drove her back to Birmingham. Following her release, police warned her there was a good chance her kidnapper would try and make contact with her, or members of the investigation. Stephanie had become important to him in those days he held her hostage, and in a way he would find it very difficult to let go of her. It would almost be like an anticlimax for him. And sure enough, they were right. A letter arrived at the BBC on the 7th of February in 1992 from a man saying he was the kidnapper. In his letter, he expressed deep remorse, but said he was not responsible for the murder of Julie Dart, which police were now publicly linking him with. Officers now had to provide Stephanie with round-the-clock protection in case he tried to make contact with her, and there was a very real possibility that would happen. Stephanie helped to produce an artist's impression, which was released to the media and other information was revealed, such as the man's handwriting. And then officers played their trump card. They went on crime watch where they played the recordings of the kidnapper's voice. That same night, a woman phoned the incident room. She had just heard the recordings and knew immediately who this man was. He was her ex-husband and his name was Michael Sams. 
She said she had seen him a few days ago at a family funeral and he was driving a red Metro, the same car that had been seen in the vicinity of Turnbury Road where Stephanie had been abducted. This woman gave officers Sam's address and the police raced round to arrest him. When they arrived they were greeted by his wife. She informed them he was at his workshop and they set off immediately. When they arrived they saw his red Metro parked outside. The big sliding door Stephanie had described greeted them and when they walked into the workshop Sam said simply, I've been expecting you. Officers noticed everything Stephanie had mentioned in a statement. The microwave, the old fashioned phone and cash register, the wooden beams in the ceiling. The radio was playing and when detectives asked what station it was tuned to, Sam's replied telling them it was Radio 2. And with that, they arrested him and charged him with the abduction of Stephanie Slater and the abduction and murder of Julie Dart. When questioned, Sam's admitted kidnapping Stephanie, but he said he had not killed Julie Dart. Police spoke with his family and friends and a disturbing picture emerged. One friend said Sam's had another side to him, that he admired mass criminals and always thought he could commit the perfect crime. He had talked about taking someone hostage before executing the perfect kidnap plot. Police believed Julie had been held in the same way as Stephanie, but speculated she had taken a blindfold off and therefore had to be killed. Forensics found strands of human hair in Michael Sam's workshop, and also traces of blood were found on the curtains. Although this was not conclusive proof, it was from the same blood group as Julie Dart, and it was not a match for Sam's, his wife, or Stephanie. In addition to this, fibres were uncovered at his workshop that matched fibres on the sheet Julie's body had been wrapped in. During questioning, Sam's repeatedly changed his story, but officers knew they'd got their man. Now, I'm not going to go into details regarding the court case because, well, I can't be bothered. Um, I think really we've covered everything we need to, but Sam's ultimately was found guilty of all charges, including the murder of Julie Dart, and sentenced to life in prison where he remains to this very day. For Stephanie, her life would never be the same again. She struggled to return to work at the estate agents and now faced a life as a well-known figure. Her face had been all over the papers. Stephanie never worked again. She moved to the Isle of Wight and volunteered, helping police forces up and down the country with kidnap cases. Stephanie very sadly died 25 years after her ordeal at the age of 50 from cancer. Our thoughts very much go out to Stephanie's loved ones and also those of Julie Dart. A very sad case, I'm sure you'll agree, and I think, obviously, the murder of Julie Dart's horrific. What Stephanie Slater went through was was just beyond words, but I think to lead a life of emotional turmoil following the kidnap and to die at the age of 50 is a really cruel twist of fate. And I know I've said it before on the show, but I think when you've been through such a traumatic event, it is quite common that we see an early premature death. Thank you for listening. Um, Really pleased that you've been back with me once again. Uh, Please do go and check out some free beer at beer52.com slash seeingred. 
If you don't currently support us on Patreon, but you would like to, please head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast and really do think about signing up to support the show. We are so grateful to our Patreon supporters. Without you guys, we really wouldn't still be here producing the show. So you absolutely are making this happen. So once again, a huge thank you. Thank you for listening. Until next time, we will see you then. Bye. Bye.